fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is a hiccuping Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how how are you today? Oh, I'm making it, Robert. How are you? <laughs> uh, we're doing okay. Uh, we, we don't have a guest this week, uh, except for Jasmine's hiccups, which I guess count as a guest. Uh, but we, we do have uh, two main topics to talk about today. The vetoes from the session are in. Andy Bashir has issued vetoes against all the bills that he is going to veto. So we have a lot about that, in addition to the bills he let become law without a signature and some bills that he signed that we thought were notable. So Jasmine's going to go through all of that. And then I am going to go back to talk about Jamie Comer. Uh, James Comer, the, the U.S. congressperson from the 1st District in Western Kentucky and now Frankfurt, who uh, has... You know, been in the news lately because of his chairmanship of the House Oversight Committee in Washington, D.C. He's definitely a congressperson on the rise, but has had kind of a, a rocky couple of weeks. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about that. We did talk about that a couple of weeks ago, but a lot has happened since then. So we're going to talk about that. And then we have a couple of quick hits to get to. So without any further ado, Jasmine, tell us about these vetoes. Okay, so... The legislature reconvenes tomorrow. Um, and so we have several vetoes to talk about that will very likely get overridden, but we'll at least talk about them today. Um, so the first one, and I think this was very likely, and we thought this would happen, is Senate Bill 150, which is the anti trans omnibus bill, um, which bans gender transition for minors discussion of gender in schools and restrictions on discussion of human sexuality in schools, required bathroom policies, all that good stuff, bad stuff, actually. Um, So Andy Bashir's veto message said that the bill allows too much government interference in personal health care issues and rips away the freedom of parents to make medical decisions for their children He also said that it turns educators and administrators into investigators. And, of course, he noted the high suicide rates among trans and LGBTQ youth. Um, And I've also seen some Republican response to Andy Bashir's veto that's basically like you've just given away your reelection by vetoing this bill, um, which... He vetoed an anti-trans bill last year, I believe, as well. So I think Andy Bashir has shown that he's usually willing to do the right thing regardless of whether it's going to be popular for his reelection or not. Um, So what do you think, Robert? Were you um, surprised, not surprised about this veto? And, And what do you think about how this might affect his campaign? Yeah, I, I think Andy Bashir has a much better read on the electorate than the Republicans do. I mean, I think that that's the main reason he was able to win election in 2019 in um, a really difficult uh, you know, state to win an election in. He, uh, I think that, that, that really kind of comes back to it is he was able to take really strong stands on issues like abortion and LGBTQ rights in his election in 2019. Those were stances he's publicly made before, really kind of, you know, the first first person who is as vocal about being, you know, pro-abortion rights and pro-gay rights, uh, running for g- governor who won as a Democrat ever, I think, um, and I, I think it's just kind of a hallmark of of the Bashir family, where his his dad 
had a different calculus and I think was facing a different electorate. And I think that they both kind of understood exactly where the electorate was and were able to win elections. And, you know, those things kind of change. And our electorate, I think, has gotten more more progressive on this issue at the same time that Republicans are, are pushing strong in the other direction. The Republicans are, of course, in a really strong position. But in my opinion, they don't understand where their strength comes from. I don't think their strength comes from being this anti-trans. I, I, I don't think that that's why people who vote Republican in the state vote Republican. And I do think that that's why like Republican activists in the state are active on this issue. But I don't think it's as animating to the base as, as they think it is. So I'm not surprised that Andy Bashir vetoed it. I think it's highly likely to get overridden because it's been one of their main, you know, pretty much their main priority this entire session. Mm-hmm. So so it is this is the most anti-trans bill in the country. I think there's been a lot of people that have been saying this, not just us. And uh, and yeah, it's likely likely to become law after the governor vetoed it. So that is that is likely where we were. Although I did see some kind of like last minute push by the fairness campaign where they were doing radio ads featuring former Republican legislators and office holders in, in Kentucky. Of course, I don't think that that's ultimately going to be enough to, to keep it from becoming law. But but it's nice to see people are, are still doing doing whatever they can to stop it from becoming law. Yeah, I was going to note that as well. So, you know, two former Republican elected officials, Trey Grayson and Bob Helleringer, who has testified multiple times in Frankfurt against some of this legislation are are doing ads for fairness to oppose this bill. Um, But, you know, that testimony didn't seem to make any kind of difference. And, um, you know, I don't think that that will make a difference in the legislature's decision to decide to override the veto either. Um, so the next one is Senate bill seven, which has become known as the JCTA bill. And what that bill does is it prevents automatic deduction of union dues for public sector unions, except hazardous workers. Um, so it, it can affect other people outside JCTA, other public sector unions. And you would have to opt in to dues going towards political activity as well, as well. And so Governor Bashir's veto message said that this is special legislation targeting public employees in violation of Kentucky Constitution, Section 59. And I said that on the podcast when we talked about it last week, that I thought that there was maybe a special legislation argument. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, he also said that it's an attack on unions and education associations, that the bill is overbroad um, and it could the way it's worded could mean that you could potentially not automatically deduct other things like insurance, charitable organization funds and financial services. And then um, he also noted that it would render public transit system ineligible for $76 million in federal fundings that he received a letter um, regarding that because of, what this bill does, um, the labor department would not, it would make them not eligible for funding. So that's unfortunate. Um, but I, I would, you know, like, like all of these bills, I think they're all likely to be overridden. This one I think is kind of unique. One of the issues with this is that some of those charitable organizations 
have strong lobbying arms. And if they really do think uh, some, if they do think that this is going to prevent them from doing automatic deductions, and that's a lot of money uh, that comes out of, of people's paychecks that goes to things like the Red Cross or the United Way or, or, or whatever, those are groups that are well you know, placed inside of Republican legislators and do have people that talk to them on a regular basis. Yeah, I do think maybe this one out of all of them, maybe at least has a chance to be fixed a little bit. Yeah. I, there's no way to fix it, right? Because if it gets changed, it's gonna get it's gonna get vetoed. Um, it would have to come in a different bill. They have to just override the veto as it exists, uh, which would mean basically right. punting it to next year. Um, they're either gonna have to do it, and, and that's kind of the thing is like this bill has been kind of on the back burner for several years, and finally had its chance to pass uh, this year. Um, and and would they be willing to just push it out another year? Um, that, that's, yeah, kind that's of a, a good point. Yeah. And, and, you know, they also could make the argument, no, we aren't going to come after contributions to the United way or whatever, but you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know who would sue about that. I don't know if there would be really issues with it, but yeah, it, it is written in a very, very broad kind of way. So, um, the next one is house bill 568, which is the Louisville public defender's office takeover. Um, and so what that bill does is the Department of Public Advocacy, the state public defender system, would take over the Louisville Public Defender's Office, which has always been a separate 501c3. Um, They would take over the Louisville office by 2024. And essentially, those offices have always been separate by statute, and Louisville gets some funding from the state and then they get some funding from Louisville Metro. Um, and I, I think it's been about 60, 40 as far as funding goes and the Louisville public defender's office unionized in 2022. And then this bill was filed by Jason Nemus this session. And so the governor's veto message, he said it was no there was no clear picture about the funding that was needed, which was absolutely true there. This is a lot for the state to take on considering a big chunk of that funding comes from the city. And there was no um, financial picture about how the city's funding would be covered by the state. I don't believe Um, the governor also said It appears to have been motivated by a desire to retaliate against attorneys in the Louisville Metro Public Defender's Office for their efforts to unionize, which I was I was a little bit surprised that he had such a strong statement about union retaliation in there. Um, I, I thought he could potentially veto it because of the funding issue, but I thought that that was a pretty strong statement in his veto message about retaliation. Yeah, I mean. Andy Bashir has been a strong union governor. I mean, he's he has the support of all the unions for sure, um, like the strong support of all the unions and even got the support of like the police union, which is usually I mean, un, it's not unusual to see police unions to support um, Republican candidates for office. He, I mean, it was pretty much unanimous in the labor movement to go for him. And, and so I think that this is a way to kind of, you know, give back to the to that movement, which has been really important to him. And, and I do know that the. The people who organized the the union were really happy to see that the um, this statement was so strong. And and yeah, I think it is it is really good to know that people like 
the governor and, and the mayor of Louisville are, are, are looking at this issue and doing what they can, which unfortunately is not very much because it's the state legislature who is the people who are kind of doing this kind of stuff. So that's. Yeah. And as as someone who spent a lot of time as a public defender, I I don't think that the Department of Public Advocacy taking over, I don't think that that's like necessarily a terrible thing. But I, I don't think that a bill with no clear vision for what funding is going to look like and a takeover that would happen within a year's time, I don't think that's enough time. And I, I don't think it's a good bill when you don't know what it's going to look like. And yeah, I would only want it to happen if I knew that it was going to be adequately funded and done well. Right. Right. And and so I think that that's that's the problem with the bill. Um, and so we'll see if they um, choose choose to take that one up or not. Um, and you know I don't know if they push back the time frame. I don't know if if the if the governor would would veto that. You know if the bill looks different, but. It is what it is. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and he vetoed it. It's But again, it, this is one that's very definitely going to get overridden, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the next one, Senate Bill 126, which is the Franklin Circuit Court Bill. Of course, this has been something that the legislature has been trying to do for a very long time. And it would allow defendants to request a change of venue in cases challenging the constitutionality of laws and orders. And the governor's veto message was that it's an unconstitutional grab of power by the General Assembly to control Kentucky's judges and is also unconstitutional special legislation. Um, So this is one that we were able to like stave off for a few legislative sessions, it seemed like. And um, then they tried to get a a new judge in Franklin Circuit Court and and that didn't work. Um, And so they finally got the bill passed. And this will certainly get overridden. And then I think we'll certainly see some kind of lawsuit. Yeah, there's a version of like court picking or that. What what do they call it when you pick your pick your court like court shopping? Forum shopping. Forum. There's a for there's a there's a there's a version of this that has passed in the past. It was HB three some year and it did pass. But there were some like loopholes in it apparently that that people kind of got around and were still filing stuff in franklin circuit court and having their requested change forum denied and this bill is supposed to like fix it so whatever lawsuits are that are going to come from this are probably like they're probably going to be added to lawsuits against that bill um but yeah you're right this is this is going even further than they've already gone uh and is just another step in them like trying to subvert their dependence on um, yeah, on Franklin Circuit Court. Yeah. And again, we'll be overridden. The thing to, watch, thing to watch on this one is the lawsuits. And then the last one that's a, a bill that we've talked about extensively on the show is Senate Bill 65, which is a bill about dental vision and hearing Medicaid benefits. So it strikes down Governor Bashir's order that provided vision, dental, and hearing benefits to Medicaid recipients. And his veto message said that this will harm Kentuckians and frustrate efforts to increase Kentucky's workforce. He cited two hours of work lost due to emergency dental care, 
um, as well as stats about hearing loss and vision services, and also said that it violates separation of powers. Um, and so that's one that we kind of didn't really talk about it until late in the session, just because some of these like social issues, like the anti-trans legislation dominated the session. Um, but some of these other really bad things like cutting benefits just kind of went under the radar. Um, but I imagine this will get overridden as well. Yes. I think it's highly likely that it will. Um, I wonder about the lawsuit. Of course, like the actual full Medicaid expansion went into effect because of an executive order. Um, and there are like there's laws on the books that basically says the governor has to make a, a you know a strong effort to maximize federal funding. And that was kind of the way that Governor Steve Bashir was able to, to, you know, legalize the Medicaid expansion. And I wonder if that you know, theory of the case isn't what leads to a lawsuit about this one, a separation of powers lawsuit. Um, this one will definitely have a lawsuit as well. Again, not likely that we are going to be paying much attention to the veto overrides because they will be overridden. But that one is um, that that one will create a lawsuit that I wonder what what will happen with it. Um, hopefully they won't just lose standing because we have a new governor that's happy to take care, take, <laughs> get rid of people's uh, insurance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are several more that I'm going to run through kind of quickly that are bills that we didn't spend a ton of time talking about. So we have House Bill 329, which is a bill that shifts who's the final authority for whether state contracts may remain in place. And so now the Government Contract Review Committee makes non-binding recommendations for which contracts are struck down, which can then be seconded or disregarded by the Secretary of Finance Administration Cabinet. And under House Bill 329, the recommendations by the committee would be binding pending a final review by the state treasurer. Um, and there's been kind of multiple attempts at a bill like this that have been um, struck down in court. And Bashir says that this version is also unconstitutional like previous attempts at this bill. Um, and then several bills about boards. Um, so House Bill 395, which creates a new project oversight board. The governor says that that's duplicative, that there's already a board that does the work that that board would do. House Bill 519 is a bill about the state fair board that puts the president and CEO of the board on Louisville's Tourist and Convention Commission. Uh, governor Bashir said the board is already currently operating in an unconstitutional manner. Um, that's that's kind of a long story yeah. <laughs> from a bill that passed last year. <laughs> um, Senate Bill 37 is about the pharmacy board. It changes membership of the advisory council on the board of pharmacy. And the governor said that this allows private organizations to appoint members to a state board, which would violate separ separation of powers. Senate Bill 107 is about Education Commission appointment, which I believe we talked about this maybe a little bit, um, but they have to be confirmed by the Senate every four years under this bill. And Bashir said that this politicizes the process of hiring the Education Commissioner and adds an unnecessary bureaucratic obstacle to hiring and keeping a commissioner. Senate Bill 122 is about capital parking 
It gives the legislature more control over parking at the Capitol, and Bashir said there is no need for control over 1,500 spots for 400 legislators and staff. Senate Bill 226 is about environmental permitting. It would speed up environmental permitting applications, and Bashir is worried that it creates a threat that the EPA will take over Kentucky's permit process, which will make business which could make businesses worse off. Senate Bill 241 is about the Department of Fish and Wildlife. It would give the department sole power to acquire perpetual conservation easements over roughly 54,000 acres of property, and Bashir vetoed that one due to lack of oversight. House Bill 4 and House Joint Resolution 69 are about electric generating facilities. Um, House Bill 4 requires operators of merchant electric generating facilities to submit plans for decommissioning facilities and a board overseeing them would no longer be able to enforce elements of construction certificates that it approves. Bashir said that bill does good things, but it removes local input on important decisions. And then that joint resolution directs the governor to certify that the e- to the EPA that the Kentucky Board of Radon Safety has authority to enter into a grant with the EPA. And Bashir said that's an attempt to shift the governor's power to the legislature. Um, so those are the governor's vetoes. Yeah, uh, they're, they're, I'm glad that we went through the rest of them because there was some stuff I learned that I didn't know about. Like, Yeah, it's a lot of... A lot of like authority, yeah. power shifting mm-hmm. kind of stuff. A lot, which is which has been like a major theme of this governor and in his relationship with the legislature. Is the legislature is basically trying to strip him of any power he has, uh, including parking. Which who knew? Who knew? Of course, like most <laughs> yeah. of the, most of the people who park at the Capitol are employees of the executive branch, and this is like literally taking over the parking lot. Uh, it's going to be. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, so good stuff there. I'm glad that I know all of this now. Lots of board stuff, which of course we're we're always talking about boards. Um, okay, but that's not all, Jasmine. What else? Uh, what did the governor sign or let become law? This is also interesting. Yeah, so there are a lot of bills that he did sign, but I wanted to note just a couple of them that we've talked about quite a bit. Um, so one that I think we've mentioned maybe once on the show is Senate Bill 9, which is a bill that criminalizes hazing. Um, and then two that we've talked about a little bit more. Um, one of those is, or two bills, House Bill 448 and 360, which are rural housing trust bills. And these bills re- reallocate some of the money used for disaster recovery in eastern and western Kentucky and allocates them towards a rural housing trust fund they they also do a bunch of other appropriations both of those bills went to conference committee after the house did not concur with changes from the senate and both bills came back with different appropriations and house bill 360 also includes some tax breaks as well so he did sign that bill both of those bills. And then the other one is House Bill 3, which is the juvenile justice bill. So we've talked about that on several episodes. It removes confidentiality in some juvenile cases. It requires detention in some felony cases. 
It also appropriates funding that was requested by the executive branch, and then it reopens the Louisville Detention Center. So um, it it does some things that the Bashir administration wanted. Um, it also has some pretty harsh consequences. But him signing this bill is no surprise to me. I said on the show, I believe last week, that I was pretty certain that he would sign it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I do think, you know, after you said that and I thought about it a little bit, I do think, like, probably the issue where, like, I personally diverged the furthest from Governor Bashir is on crim- issues of criminal defense. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, you know, he was the attorney general and, like we mentioned earlier, got the endorsement of the FOP. Like, that's just... You know, yeah, he was the head prosecutor of the whole state, so we're a little bit different, right? Absolutely. So, uh, so, so that I guess that that was something I had to remember there. So, yeah, the the fact is, HB three had had kind of even a even if it was like a very progressive on criminal defense governor had anybody in a bind because of how bad the juvenile justice you know, detention issues had become across the state, which is another issue we've detailed throughout this year. Um, and, and the fact that there was desperately needed funding to solve some of that problem. And it came with a lot of strings and, and, you know, of course, Andy Bashir is going to find those strings significantly more palatable than we would. But so all of that to say, of course he signed it. Um, that's not that, 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 uh, after, after being set straight by you, Jasmine, I am not surprised either. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and kind of the same goes for the rural housing trust fund. This was a, a good idea. Um, definitely something that was like a really popular idea. This is a very common thing that happens in legislation. You get a popular bill that's got a core of an idea, and then all of a sudden you get a bunch of crap that kind of gets attached to it. And, you know, honestly, some of it I'm a big fan of. Like, they're going to do a renovation of the Louisville Zoo. There's, like, some stuff in here I'm like, hey, that sounds fun, and, like, some stuff I don't care about at all. But that's just kind of how mm-hmm. it went. So I'm not surprised he, he signed that also. Um, so, so yeah, uh, maybe the HB3 thing is, is a little disappointing, um, but I'm not surprised at at any of the stuff that's happened yeah and and there certainly is a pretty desperate need for funding for the djj facilities so you know and his administration asked for that funding so i do understand it in that respect but it, it definitely does um have some really harsh consequences that i i think will be um really really devastating for for kids um and lastly i just wanted to talk about um a few bills that will become law without the governor's signature there there's about 12 or 13 i believe 13 of those bills but i wanted to note three of them um first senate bill five um which is the obscene material complaint process bill um most people are calling this like the book ban bill. I, I wouldn't go so far as calling it the book ban because it's it's not quite that. It's a it's a potential book ban. It's a process right? it's for a banning books. Yeah, it's a process for it. Um, so that will go into law without his signature. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I thought he would do with that. What do you think, Robert? You know, it, again, it got kind of goes back to I think the like reading of the electorate. Like this is one like Governor Bashir supports genderqueer in every school or something because he didn't veto or because he vetoed this bill. Governor Bashir support and like that. Like I feel like he he felt the pressure, felt the threat 
of there potentially being you know some sort of attack from the Republican gubernatorial candidate that might resound or might what, what mm-hmm. might, might resonate with uh, the electorate about this one um you know the governor the governor's vetoes are messages at in Kentucky they can override every veto so it's it's mostly like do you want to send a message not right. really an, an effective way to stop things from becoming law. Uh, I think by not signing it, he's signaling, I, I see that this is a bad law, guys. I, I'm not a supporter of this. Um, but I'm not going to go so far as to like issue a whole statement about why I think it's bad. I'm mostly just going to let this one uh, fly and uh, try to avoid any attacks that might come because because of that one. So, yeah. Yeah, and had this been harsher in some way like yeah if it had been kind of a more florida style like let's take all the books yeah, out of schools then, yeah then maybe we would have seen a veto there but because it's it's more about establishing the process maybe it was more about like letting this one just go without signature and it leaves the authority in the hands of the people working at the school um and at the district level mm-hmm. and school level which which you know th- this bill this bill could have been a lot worse there's no doubt about it um and it's not good of course it's bad uh, and the fact that he didn't sign it that that's it shows that he agrees with us on that but yes it could be so much worse uh, and it is not so that is what it is The next one is Senate Bill 48, which is a cabinet for health and family services reorganization, which includes that child support enforcement will now be done by the attorney general's office. Um, And I don't, I don't really know how I feel personally about this bill. I, I know that the cabinet is, is often like pretty, overburdened (laughs) generally but i i don't know enough about it to know if moving child support enforcement will be a good or bad thing i think it has the potential to make it more prosecutorial um but but i don't know yeah the 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 people behind this one are some of the more moderate republican senators like julie racky adams danny carroll uh, Stephen Meredith, like that. Th- those guys are 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 not the the worst people to work with, and this bill could have been the product of some work that was done behind the scenes by some people striking some compromises. I don't know, uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons it, it went forward without a signature. And then the last one I wanted to note is House Bill One Fifty Three, which is the Second Amendment Sanctuary Bill. So, um, that's the bill that basically says that. Kentucky won't enforce any like federal ban on firearms. Yeah, definitely going to let the courts sort that one out. Um, you know, again, another read on the legislature, another read on the electorate, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I do think guns and uh, the prevention of gr- gun crimes is a growing and, and a really important issue in Louisville. Um, but he's not going to lose any votes by letting this one become law, and he very well could lose votes by uh, vetoing it and having some attack ads about how he doesn't support the Second Amendment um, come in for for some of those moderate voters in really Republican areas. You know, uh, it could push some of the margins in some of those very Republican counties to the point where he can't overcome them. So that would be bad for him. So that is uh, that's too bad, but also wouldn't have really mattered because they would have just overridden it in the first place. My yeah. advice to Governor Bashir is always veto every piece of legislation that comes across your desk. There's no way they can override them all uh, and and just kind of like let the let the chips fall where they may. Um, 
he hasn't he has yet to take that advice so um <laughs> yeah yeah all right uh yeah jasmine thank you so much for all of the veto information uh definitely learned a lot uh i knew that the, all of these stories were kind of flying last week with all uh, you know everybody talking about the veto message about their particular bill so it's nice to have it all laid out in one place the thing that I wanted to talk about this week was, should I call him James or Jamie? Like, I've always called, I called him Jamie Comer, but, you know, now he's in D.C. It's a little bit like when somebody goes to high school and they went, they're like, no, I'm no longer Bobby. I'm Robert, which is not what he I was, did. He was Jamie when he ran for governor. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. It, it, but now he's in D.C. and they, they all talk about okay. James Comer. I, and I, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm, I honestly, like, I am not trying to belittle Jamie Comer by calling him Jamie Comer. That's, like, just literally what I've always called him. So that is that is what it is. I will be belittling him in other parts of this segment, but not that. Not by just calling we can, him James. We can call him James yeah. if, okay. if that's what he goes by now. All right. Okay. So we have been talking more and more about James Comer since he received the gavel as the chairman of the House Oversight Committee in this uh, session of the United States Congress. Uh, We talked about how his profile in D.C. has increased significantly, but that, of course, has come with more pressure. More people are paying attention to the things that he's doing. uh, And and that dynamic of him being out front, being uh, in front of a lot of people and having a lot of pressure on him was really on display this last week when he was treated to a lengthy feature that was written by Jonathan Swan uh, with Luke, the guy named Luke Broadwater. So Jonathan Swan is this guy who really kind of is a star reporter these days in national politics. He's written a ton about uh, Republicans, especially he had, he was one of the very few reporters to get like a sit down interview on television with Donald Trump. Um, You know, that that's very rare. To, to have be, be, be given that that privilege. Uh, Jonathan Swan did that. He's Australian. It's kind of weird to see him talking to American political figures, but uh, he, he's a good writer. Um, but yeah, I think one of his superpowers is getting Republicans to talk to him. So he's he's quite good at that. Um, Comer very clearly like sat for this interview. Uh, he, he talked to Jonathan Swan, gave a lot of quotes to him. Uh, it was a pretty big deal. It was a lengthy profile in the New York Times about him. So that, you know, that is that is Jamie Comer, James Comer. Uh, but the contents of the article got a little wonky. There was a spot in the article that brought back Comer's conduct in 2015 uh, and in a lot of ways that didn't reflect very good, very well on him. So it was another reason to talk about the allegations that he physically abused his former girlfriend, which, you know, are, are things that that are, are probably not brought up enough, but, you know, are things that he has avoided talking about at length. Uh, and, and also it provided new information about that case where he basically admitted to being behind uh, the leaked emails in 2015 that kind of caused this whole story to explode and likely sank his candidacy. So I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a second. But also, in addition to that, he admitted to avoiding a speeding ticket when a patrol car asked him, are we going to get Biden or not? Uh, so that was that was kind of weird. Like, you know, I'll get into this, the, the the big piece, which is this emails thing. But just like casually admitting that, you know, I got off of a speeding ticket by promising to go after Joe Biden is just kind of a weird thing to just tell a reporter. Yeah. I don't know, especially for, for a national figure. So the biggest piece of the situation, of course, is Comer revealing himself as the source of the emails, um, which were shared with the Herald leader. So th- l- this is the story. OK, um, 
Back in 2015, all of uh, this information about Comer abusing a former girlfriend was coming from this blog that was on Tumblr. <laughs> uh, 2015, man, what a time. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'll be honest, just a few people read this thing. Like, it had a really weird name. Like, if you want blood, you've got it or something. I don't remember what it was called. But uh, <laughs> it was this very strange Tumblr blog that mostly was just spreading rumors at the t- like which were essentially rumors that James Comer was uh, had abused his girlfriend back in college and you know it was just kind of in the ether not a lot of people that were voters were really paying attention to this but the people who did pay attention to this this blog were like political junkies the people who Jamie Comer spent his spent his time around um and, and that story was all anybody could really talk about in those circles so somebody which we have now learned is is actually James Comer shared a bunch of emails between that blogger who their name was my is Michael Adams, not the guy who's the Secretary of State, a different person. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, very strange coincidence there. Um, so th- there were emails between that Michael Adams and Scott Crosby, who is um, a, a lawyer. Um, and, and somebody who had some authority in this situation. And, but Scott Crosby is married to KC Crosby, um, a popular Republican at the time, who was running as the lieutenant governor candidate on gubernatorial candidate Hal Heiner's slate, um, which was how they had to do it back then, where you pick your candidate, pick your lieutenant governor candidate right away. So uh, that, that was like kind of a big deal that the Herald leader was like, oh my gosh collusion between the Heiner campaign and this this blogger because of these emails that went back and forth between Scott Crosby and, and Michael Adams. And, and Hal Heiner was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know anything about this. I, I didn't want to be involved in this story at all. And that story in the Herald Leader then prompted Comer's ex-girlfriend to actually come out and confirm these reports to speak on her side of the story in a story that was published in the, in the Courier Journal. Uh, and then, of course, Comer lost by 83 votes to, to Matt Vevin. Um, it was a wild, wild situation uh, back there in 2015. And, of course, we were all like, oh, well, who cares who the Republican candidate is going to be? They're just going to get crushed by Jack Conway. Uh, of course, not what happened. Um, okay, so so that's like what happened. But the, the big reveal there was that, you know, the person who actually leaked these emails was James Comer. Uh, and the person uh, who, uh, you know, wrote about this story originally back in 2015, who shared this the, the girlfriend side of the story was Joe Girth, who at the time was a reporter for the Courier Journal doing more like reporting type stuff and is now more of a columnist where he like writes his opinion more 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 than anything else. And he wrote a story about this after the New York Times profile came out that really kind of eviscerated Comer's judgment in 2015, again, bringing up how bad of an idea that was, made him look like a bad politician because he did lose that race. And then also, you know, talking about his bad judgment now, revealing this uh, this whole situation, which is potentially a crime. Um, and in fact, since this releva- revelation has come to pass, the Congressional Integrity Group has asked for the Fayette County Commissioners or Fayette County Commonwealth's attorney to open an investigation into Comer. So uh, I don't know if that investigation is going to happen or if it's going to go anywhere. But like these are just kind of weird fumbles by James, James Comer in this story, which was supposed to be like a puff piece basically about him in the New York Times with all these like glossy photos of him doing things like campaigning and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, so so just kind of some strange missteps by, by, by James Comer in, in this story, this big, big feature in the New York Times. 
Meanwhile, back in D.C., national opinion journalist uh, Jennifer Rubin, who you know was a conservative opinion leader for for really for decades before Donald Trump, and has since become one of those like never Trumper type Republicans, um, who you know, but you know has been very conservative in the past, a big fan of like Ronald Reagan and the Iraq War and stuff like that. Uh, and, and she wrote this op-ed about like how bad James Comer is for the Washington Post. Uh, she said his claim that Silicon Valley Bank failed because of wokeness was absurd uh and she said that his claim that the spy balloons that probably came from china contained bioweapons she said that was absurd uh, or she yeah she called both of these things absurd which I, I i can't really i can't really disagree um but it was just kind of surprising to see james comer the republican congressman from kentucky getting like negative press from a conservative columnist in a national magazine and this at during the same time that he's getting bad press for a different reason locally and out of this story that was run nationally so you know I also saw another story today in Vox, which is a national political blog that was mostly like the Republican investigations are a flop that talked about how James Comer's hearings failed to get Hunter Biden under the front page of a lot of newspapers and that people didn't really care as much about the Twitter files as they thought they would. And that in the past, this has been like a, a well-trod way to like gin up anti or bad bad sentiment about an incumbent democrat during an election kind of season and how the this current uh crop of of republicans who are running these committees is not been able to do that so he so yeah you know i don't know jasmine at the end of the day i'm a bias source i don't like james comer um but i don't think he's doing that good of a job both in his actual job which I definitely don't think he's doing a good job and he's not focusing his investigations on things but also just about uh, the the people who are supposed to be his allies. He's also not doing a great job, you know, getting them to feel like he's doing a good job. I don't think he needs to please me, but he needs to please those people. Um, I don't know. What what do you what do you think about all that? Of course, I don't think he's doing a good job. Seems like he's like fumbling the bag on like this like power and popularity that he has, but. I mean, something that is is great about Republicans is that, like, their coalition often, like, is okay with whatever their people are doing, yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, and so and so I don't I don't know if they feel that way. And no matter what, I don't know. I, I think that sometimes like these never Trumper type people are maybe more of the outliers than the James Comers in the party. And so I don't I don't know if other Republicans agree with Jennifer Rubin. Yeah. And I certainly don't think that anything he's done. I don't know if it affects his ability to go on to 
higher or other office, but I certainly don't think it affects his ability to get reelected in Kentucky. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I agree that like Republicans don't care about the, the national media in the same way that the Democrats do. They're not like glued to CNN. Well, you know, they're, they, they care in a different way. They like, don't like CNN, even, though, even if they may watch it. Uh, that's like the caricature of, of like, I think like a Trump Republican. Um, Speaking of CNN, I didn't even talk about his appearance on Jake Tapper, where he basically said that <laughs> people shouldn't investigate Donald Trump because uh, he's the, he's a presidential candidate, despite the fact that he's like investigating the Biden. Family. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and, and actually, OK, and I actually think that that might be a good example of, of what I'm saying. So you have to balance two things if you're James Comer. Don't fire up the other side's base and fire up your base. Um, and yeah, I don't think people care what Jennifer Rubin says, but that's like a chance for, you know, resistance Democrats, uh, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. to like share an article. Like, oh my gosh, this James Comer guy is making me so angry. And like that, you know, activates people, causes them to maybe like walk one extra precinct when it comes time to do that, you know, whatever, talk to their friends and, 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 and activates that side, which is what you're not trying to do. And um, that wouldn't be so bad if you n- neutralized it by ginning up your own base. But I just don't feel like it's really doing that. I don't feel like there's as much outrage as they expected about things like Hunter Biden or the Twitter files or whatever else. Like those just those things aren't resonating like things like Benghazi uh, did for for Trey Gowdy or, you know, uh, I don't know, like whatever random uh, Obama era death panels or whatever, like that kind of stuff, like really got people going. Uh, and, and it doesn't feel like that these these investigations are doing the same. Yeah, thing. I do think you're right about that. I think like Benghazi and emails and, emails. and all that stuff kind of like... <laughs> dominated and this isn't really seeming to like break through in that same way yeah so you know i don't know i I don't know like like we said we're pretty biased about this kind of stuff but but it does kind of feel like james comer is not quite doing the job that he did i do agree with you jasmine i don't think he's under threat in the first district although it may like draw some people into caring about this race that wouldn't have like maybe he's gonna get the whatever it is, like Amy McGrath treatment, or maybe he'll get the, uh, you know, one of the the doomed Democratic candidates who, you know, overperforms by 20, 30 points, but still loses by 15. You know, maybe that will Mm -hmm. be him this time. And he also drew like one of the only Democratic counties into his own district. He actually has some strong candidates that are potentially, you know, sitting there in Franklin County who may be interested in running against him. You know, we'll see. Maybe we'll get a decent candidate in, in the first district this time. Um, yeah. All right. Well, that's enough about James Comer. Two quick hits, and then we'll get out of here. So first of all, uh, Jasmine, did you hear that Mitch McConnell fell down and hurt himself? Um, Yeah, I did. Yeah, so he did. And he has actually since been released from his inpatient physical therapy program and is working from home. Um, You know, that's impressive he's in he's an older guy like he's in his 80s which is surprising to me he's either in his 70s or 80s he's he's older than i think he is every time i look up his age um and and you know falls are really serious for for folks of that age um and that uh that is good to hear that he's on the mend um 81 yeah he's i knew he was in his 80s i remember i should have been more confident uh that's not usually a problem with me uh but anyways uh i i i you know obviously don't support him as a politician but you know 
Don't want to see the guy get hurt. So uh, hope he gets well soon. Um, that's the first one. Uh, the second one, I was going to do a whole segment about this, but it wasn't a full segment, but it is kind of interesting. So one of the shortcomings about the Department of Justice report, uh, which went into the conduct of the Louisville Metro Police Department, was that there were no specifics about the individual officers or judges or really anybody. There's no like identifying information about any of these like really egregious stories that they detailed in their report. The Greenberg administration said that they had received some information, like the the PIU numbers, I think, was kind of the main thing about what which of these things are connected to the individual anecdotes that were written by the DOJ, and that they would release that identifying information uh, as it as they were able to decode it. So that's kind of a big deal, I think, uh, that the media had really been calling for this. I think another one of those examples of something that Greg Fisher 100% would not have done, um, we will see, you know, it's good to get this commitment from the Greenberg administration and and i really hope that they follow through and actually do it um did you have any thoughts about that jasmine no i agree i hope that they do that as well yeah all right well that's all um yeah i you know no guest this week but we did talk for you know about 50 minutes so that's plenty of stuff for you to listen to uh jasmine how can people get a hold of us they can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can sub- subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Whiskey.